America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when a couple of folks have gotten fired or suspended or canned. Why? Because in the wake of the shootings in Nashville, they actually seem to encourage the idea of violence, the idea of killing people you disagree with. We'll get to that, uh, but uh, there's also a sign of agreement. There are some 54 members of the House of Representatives who have signed a letter for a resolution that is being led by Representative Adam Smith of the state of Washington. He uh, represents parts of Pierce County and of uh, King County in his congressional district, former chair of the House Armed Services Committee. It's, a, um, it's an attempt to deal with some of the mental health problems and, uh, that we experience. And uh, uh, Congressman Smith is able to join us in a very busy day, and I appreciate it. This resolution that you are co-sponsoring with three of your colleagues, and you have 54 of your colleagues who have signed on to it, it sounds like a no-brainer, like one of those things that should draw bipartisan support to help us deal with the crisis in mental health we have here in the country. Uh, you've gotten that kind of bipartisan support, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. And look, the mental health crisis has multiple different layers. Um, the specific thing that this focuses on is to have mental health crisis response units. Really, I mean, right now, I mean, we, we ask the police to respond to all of these things, um, which shouldn't be central to their job in most instances um, and not their specialty. We, we have a thing in Seattle called Health One, and the idea is there, there are trained primarily social workers in this case, but can also be therapists who go out with mostly the fire department to help them. But we've got like three people on that. We need to greatly expand those services so that we can get out there and be ready to deal with the extreme mental and behavioral health issues that we see on our streets, certainly in the Seattle King County area, uh, but in many places across the country. They need more help. Just relying on law enforcement isn't going to get it done. We, we need trained social workers and mental health specialists to help with that. And this bill tries to drive dollars out to help hire those people and get them doing that job. Have you gotten some uh, police departments, some police officials, people who are veterans of law enforcement who agree with this position? The idea that for some of the domestic disputes, some of the basically just people losing it and behaving in, in clearly a mentally disturbed fashion, that uh, the police agree that it's better to have mental health professionals deal with it rather than throwing it all to them. Absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, we've, we've, we've got a problem in many jurisdictions in this country, with, which you know, in, in light of much of, well, there's been a lot of legitimate police reform out there, a lot of effort to figure out how we can you know, reimagine policing, do it in a way that's more conducive to the community. But as you know, there's also been a ton of conflict uh, between law enforcement and, and people who want to defund the police or abolish the criminal justice system. And in some cases, that, that more political argument has made this dialogue more difficult than it should be. Uh, but a lot of us are trying to break through that and work with our mental health professionals and law enforcement respect the job both of them do, bring them together to make sure we can all do it better. But there's, there's a ton of work to be done here. 
um, to, to begin to focus on this problem in the right way. So how would this uh, resolution work? And is there any chance that it would deal with um, one of our big crises, particularly in your district, which is homelessness uh, and, yeah. and dealing with some of the mental health components of the homeless crisis? I think this is a crucial component of that. It basically directs, you know, $100 million out of uh, part Department of Health and Human Services um, to help fund these programs and help support jurisdictions like the city of Seattle. And there's also a suburban cities effort in South King County to help fund these things. The, the other thing that we want to draw attention to is we also have to have facilities for this. As you know, I mean, starting in the 80s, we, we shut down a lot of our institutions. Um, Western state, Eastern state hospital in our state dramatically reduced their population. And then in the last 15 or 20 years, we've started to lose community-based beds because of the high cost of operating them. We need places for these folks to go once we properly handle them as well. There's an enormous mental health crisis, and homelessness you know, is dry. So many of the people who are homeless are dealing with some sort of behavioral health issue, drugs, mental health. And, and the treatment options in this country are just not what they should be. And, and I should say, I, I went through my own extended anxiety problem. Um, and even from my position, trying to find help with that was really difficult. I've actually written a book about the experience. Because um, the other thing we need to do is to make sure that we have access to basic health, basic mental health care services. We really need to focus more attention on this. And I guess, sorry, last thing on this is the, the drug problem. Um, in, in so much of our country, that drives many of the, the mental health and homelessness issues. You know, drugs can lead directly to mental health problems. And ironically, one of the big problems I have with our mental health system is the degree to which their first suggestion is always to put you on drugs. I know I walk down that road. Um, I think we need a much more thoughtful approach to how we treat treat mental health. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It's all tied into the homeless problem, the drug problem, the crime problem. It really starts with behavioral health. Okay. And as I was reading over your material, Congressman Smith, and, and thank you for bringing this issue before us, I, I it seems as if you wouldn't be taking any support away from traditional law enforcement. This, this does not shift resources it adds resources. Am I right? Absolutely. Look, and that's one of the big, big mistakes here. Um, you know, we need additional approaches on mental health. I will also say we need to spend the money we're already spending better than we're spending it. Okay. This isn't just a matter of more money. You know, there are a lot of programs that are being run out there that aren't necessarily as effective as they should be. And I'm always in favor of let's look at the resources we've got, figure out how we can spend them better. But you have to have a functioning criminal justice system as part of this. You just do. You can't come in and defund the police and you know, stop prosecuting people and, and shut down every jail. You have to have a functioning criminal justice system and a functioning behavioral health system. Both are necessary uh, to, to, to have the quality of life that I think we all have a right to expect in our communities. Uh, in, in terms of uh, where it goes next, uh, have you have a commitment? Does, does the speaker seem to be willing to take this to the House floor? I think there is bipartisan support. Uh, the most likely place we'd go through this is through the appropriations process. 
Um, I don't know that we would do necessarily do a separate bill, though we are asking for that. Uh, the logical thing would be to go through the appropriations process um, and do it as part part of our regular funding as we go forward. And like I said, there is bipartisan support for this, and, and I'm going to work to try and build on that. On on another issue, we're going to be talking on a later in the show. Uh, I I take it that you and uh, the majority of your colleagues on both sides of the aisle in the House still favor continued aid to Ukraine in uh, that Absolutely. crucial struggle. Yeah, now there is bipartisan support for that. Ukrainians are inspiring us every day. They've stopped the Russians cold at the moment in their offensive in Bakhmut. Now we got to arm them for the next, you know, five or six months so that the Ukrainians can mount the counteroffensive and retake the territory that the Russians have taken from them. There is strong bipartisan support for that, and, and I'm certainly part of that. Well, I thank you for that, and thank you for joining us on a very busy day. Uh, people can read about exactly what you're trying to do, which is a commonsensical, very constructive, it seems to me, approach to a problem that needs more attention in the United States, which is the crisis in mental health, particularly among too many of our young people. Congressman Adam Smith, you can read about what he is doing and what he's planning to do at michaelmedved.com. When we come back, a, a prominent commentator on The View uh, suggests that America is uh, comparable to China. Why? Because uh, our genocide, in quotes, that we are committing now is comparable to what they're doing to the Uyghurs. Okay, how does anybody say that with a straight face? We will get to that and to more coming up on The Medved Show. Medved show. One of the things that we've been talking about all week, and in fact we began talking about it last week, is this new poll that shows that it is now a minority of Americans who think that patriotism is uh, is very important in the United States. It's only about a third of Americans, 38 percent, who say that patriotism is very important. It used to be over 70 percent. And uh, they had a discussion about this on The View of all places. And uh, uh, Sonny Hostin uh, basically took the position that no problem that patriotism is declining because the United States has so many flaws. And Alyssa Farah Griffin, who... Uh, argued that despite its flaws, the U.S. is still the greatest nation on earth and must act as leader of the free world. And she brought up the Chinese government's imprisoning Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps and killing them en masse as an example of why America's leadership is necessary and appropriate. And wait till you hear the way that Sonny Hostin responded to that. This is from The View on ABC TV. A uh, clip five. China, a country that right now the government is imprisoning Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. It is a deeply racist government. It's a human rights violating government. It is a government that if they are the leader of the free world, we are not a free world the way that we are right now. So I love this nation. I think we are the greatest nation on earth despite our flaws. And I would also finally say 
Nowhere else in the world do all these women sit at this table. I think the ability to have, to be able to rise quickly and in one generation. I don't see that part of American exceptionalism. I'm sorry. I think this country has a lot of problems that could be solved. Yes, maybe they're putting uh, Muslims in jail in Afghanistan, I think you mentioned. And China. And China they're putting a lot of black, more black people in jail but here. Can I they're putting more black people in jail here than the literally millions of, of Uyghurs. And again, the Uyghurs not because of doing anything. Usually when it is, uh, usually in virtually all cases, when someone is put in jail, black, white, uh, Latino, Asian, whoever goes to jail, and people of all races do, uh, it's because there has been some kind of legal process and there has been some kind of involvement in criminal activity, or at least to the satisfaction of a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And there was a piece in the, in the papers today, this morning, and it was a piece that, that moved me very deeply. And I was talking to my wife about it this morning at the breakfast table. And uh, basically, this is one of the reasons that God Bless America is appropriate not just to sing on special occasions, but to sing all the time. This story from Associated Press, a uh, Russian court yesterday convicted a single father over a social media post critical of the war in Ukraine and sentenced him to two years in prison. A case brought against him after his daughter's drawing at school opposed the invasion. But Alexei Moskalyalov uh, fled house arrest before his verdict was delivered in his Russian hometown of Yefremov, which is a suburb of Moscow. And he is at large. And in fact, there are reports that he is already working with opponents of the government to get, to get out of God, to get out of the country. The problem is he's a single father who's separated from his 13-year-old daughter. The, his 13-year-old daughter, Maria, who's also known as Masha, uh, was taken from him by the authorities, wrote him a supportive letter for his trial from the orphanage where she has been confined, according to his lawyer. The uh, letter that she wrote to him, Daddy, you're my hero. Moskalyov's case has drawn international attention and was a grim reminder that the Kremlin is intensifying its crackdown on dissent targeting more people and handing out harsher punishments for any criticism of the war. The broad government campaign of repression has been unseen since Soviet days. Moskalyov, 54, was accused of repeatedly discrediting the Russian army. The Russian army is doing a pretty good job of it themselves, actually, which is a criminal offense in accordance to a, a law Russian authorities adopted shortly after sending troops into Ukraine. He was indicted for a series of social media posts about Russian atrocities in Ukraine and referencing the terrorist regime in Moscow that he insists he, or words he never used. But according to his lawyer and activists who supported him throughout the case and trial, his trouble started last spring after his 13-year-old daughter, Masha, drew an anti-war picture at Yefremov School No. 9 that depicted missiles flying over a Russian flag aimed at a woman and child. The caption, Glory to Ukraine, Slava Ukraine. In uh, April 2022, 
Moskalyov was fined for critical comments on social media. His apartment was raided in December, and a criminal case was opened against him this month. He was placed under house arrest, and his daughter was placed into this orphanage. Moskalyov rejected the accusations and insisted that he had nothing to do with the social media posts in question. In a short closing statement, Moskalyov said he was against what the Kremlin insists on calling a special military operation. How can one feel about death, about people who are dying, adults who are dying, children, children? Only negatively. How else can one feel about a war, he was quoted as saying by Russia's independent news site, Mediazona. Court officials said that uh, Moskalyov fled house arrest overnight from his apartment in Yefremov, about 186 miles south of Moscow and a similar distance north of the Ukrainian border. He had been wearing a bracelet that tracked his movements, but apparently had taken it off when an official announced in court Tuesday that Moskalyov had fled. The audience shouted, bravo, at least some members of the audience, courageous members. Uh, the uh, lawyer visited Masha, the 13-year-old daughter. And by the way, I've looked at her drawings. She's a very gifted artist. She's terrific. The lawyer visited Maria Masha in the orphanage Tuesday and told reporters that while he wasn't able to see her, local administrators allowed him to photograph a letter she wrote to her father, which ended with, Daddy, you're my hero. The lawyer uh, also was given two drawings uh, Masha made depicting a dog and rabbits. Uh, th this is so extraordinary. I mean, this is a single dad. His, uh, the mother apparently uh, abandoned the family when little Maria Masha was three years old. And, and now she's being held against her will in this orphanage where the main goal is to educate her and to stop her from uh, making what they've found actually on her own uh, uh, computer, uh, which is unflattering caricatures of Vladimir Putin. Can you imagine? And a 13-year-old is going to be confined in an orphanage and separated from her father because of that? God bless America. Uh, with all our problems, we'll get to some of those problems and attempts to deal with them coming up on The Medved Show. For special discounts on history shows, check out MedvedHistoryStore.com. On the uh, Michael Medved show, I, I should note that uh, concerning that exchange uh, on the view between Sonny Hostin who said that America's worse than China because we imprison more people, there are more bad black people in jail here. Uh, she was not only slandering the United States, not only covering up for uh, Chinese horrors and, and crimes, frankly, uh, but she was also wrong. Uh, on Mediaite, they uh, actually gave her loser of the day. And one of the reasons that they gave her uh, loser of the day is they say while Hostin had every right to call out racism in America, especially regarding mass incarceration, dismissing concentration camps is not the way to do it. She also happened to be wrong. How do we know she's wrong? Okay, 
According to all news reports, there are more than a million Muslims who were reportedly held in concentration camps by the Chinese, more than a million. Uh, and it's been condemned by human rights groups all over the world. Uh, black Americans make up approximately 760,000 of the 2 million people who are detained in prison. A uh, disproportionate number, a uh, terrible number. Uh, we should do something about it, if we possibly can, uh, without undermining the criminal justice system. But when you say that uh, we throw more black people into jail than the Chinese have, it's just not even true. And yes, truth matters. And uh, the truth is that there are a couple of uh, cuckoos who, I, frankly, I don't know, but they sound like just some of the worst people in the world. I mean, really, really bad. And they both got fired, which is a, a, a very good thing. And uh, here's, here's the first story. It involves the story of Arizona's new governor, Katie Hobbs. And the press secretary of Katie Hobbs is out of a job after posting a controversial tweet that appears to encourage the murder of transphobes. Uh, Jocelyn Berry resigned overnight, the governor's office confirmed to the local news outlet Arizona's family. Uh, Jocelyn Berry's Monday post read, us when we see transphobes, and it showed a GIF of a woman toting two guns. Now, this was posted long after the horrors in Nashville, after the transgendered, actually it's a transgendered man as they say, it's somebody who was born as a woman but now sees herself as a man, so they call that a transgendered man. But in any event, they, uh, they published a uh, post, an image, and the image was taken from the Jenna Rollins uh, movie, uh, uh, some time ago. It's an image of the actress Jenna Rollins holding up two guns. And given the fact that the murder of three little children, uh, nine years old, and three adults, that the murder of those six people was done with two guns like that, uh, us when we see transphobes, and this coming two days after that murder, really? It actually says Barry... The press secretary to the governor of Arizona, Democrat, uh, posted the tweet hours after a horrific attack on the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee, which left three nine-year-old children dead as well as three adults. The female shooter identified as transgender. The tweet was immediately criticized within Arizona. You think it's criticized us when we see transphobes? And outside of it, Twitter even removed the post with a notice saying that Barry had violated the platform's rules. Uh, Barry's account is now on private. Uh, the Arizona Freedom Caucus, uh, which is a, um, obviously is a conservative-leaning group, said less than 12 hours after the tragic shooting in Nashville by a deranged transgender activist, Katie Hobbs, press secretary, calls for shooting people Democrats disagree with. Calling for violence like this is un-American and never acceptable. Uh, Jocelyn Berry should be fired immediately. Well, she was. Uh, in an earlier tweet in the same thread, Berry said, and I don't even know what this means. 
She said, if you work in a progressive community and are transphobic, you're not progressive, period. End of story. It's not hard to understand, but your bigotry masquerading as feminism absolutely is. Okay, it's unclear what that has to do with, but somebody who is, is this far away from the mainstream that she would seem to justify in a, a tweet the, the murderous rampage that took the life of six people in Nashville and has scarred the country, uh, totally inappropriate. And then there's this, uh, this is from another part of the country, uh, it's a, from another very close state, by the way. Arizona is a swing state. It is now no longer reliably Republican. Same way Michigan is a swing state. And this comes out of uh, Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, professors these days get away with a lot, David Strom says over at Hot Air, as long as they are left wing. But apparently, commie privilege only goes so far, even in today's university environments. Although it should be noted that while the university doesn't endorse killing political opponents yet, Facebook thought this was just fine. Uh, and uh, he, what they're talking about is a statement made by a, uh, a professor named Stephen Shaviro, who... Uh, criticize students who shout down and intimidate conservative speakers who come to campus. It only encourages them. Better to kill them off, he said. In other words, that shouting them down only encourages them. It's better to kill them. It's funny, uh, writes David Strom, as I perused the uh, suspension the note explaining it, none of the mainstream media sites actually reported what he said. They all called his face on Facebook allegedly violent. There's no allegedly about it. He said, quote, I think it is far more admirable to kill a racist, homophobic, or transphobic speaker than it is to shout them down. It's admirable to kill them? This is all taking place within the context of the Stanford kerfuffle over a federal judge who was driven off campus by law students objecting angrily to his politics. Apparently, Professor Shaviro disdains the students for not having the moral courage to actually kill the bastard because as a conservative, he deserves it. While most professors wouldn't go that far, even the Chronicle of Higher Education is publishing essays on why the students were right to drive him off, which tells you everything you need to know about the state of American higher ed. Uh, we don't teach history anymore, so every generation has to learn the same lesson. Leftism and violence go together everywhere and always. The modern left was born in the French Revolution, and every leftist movement since has fetishized violent revolution. But at, at least, again, credit to Wayne State University that uh, they suspended Professor Shaviro. Now, what will he say to justify him having uh, called upon students as an admirable act to kill conservative speakers who come to campus? Uh, and, and David Strom writes again at Hot Air, 
He writes, obviously there are right-wingers who fetishize violence, but violent right-wing movements in the U.S. are inevitably fringe, while left-wing movements are co-opted by the mainstream. I've never met a genuine white supremacist, but every left-wing rally I have attended is filled with Marxists and anarchists selling their wares and carrying their signs. So it's no surprise to find a professor, professor getting caught promoting violence. What is a surprise is his getting punished for it, very appropriately. More university news, a, uh, another name change forced on a sports team. Coming up. The Michael Medved Show. Medved show a report from the Washington Post a smattering of uh, potential GOP presidential hopefuls that excluded uh, Donald J. Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, pitched their own possible candidacies to a gathering of conservative activists and donors in Sea Island Georgia which is a beautiful place to visit uh, this was an audience that appeared to be still hankering, their word, for a third option in the 2024 presidential race. That means beyond DeSantis and Trump. Uh, Mike Pence was there. So was the New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu, who is speaking increasingly seriously about throwing his hat into the ring. He would have the advantage of that early primary in New Hampshire which is still crucial, along with the Iowa caucuses, as one of the first two in the country. Uh, also, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin was there. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, they all spoke at the American Enterprise Institute-sponsored summit. Uh, Christie uh, reportedly compared Trump to a member of the living dead, suggesting that he was a zombie. Uh, saying that a stake would have to be di driven through his heart or he would keep coming back like a vampire. Um, <laughs> uh, do you think Trump is going to respond to that? Uh, I mean, he might. Is he is he calling when he... <laughs> and that, now remember, Chris Christie was the first Republican candidate to drop out and endorse Trump. He was the head of Trump's transition when Trump was uh, just uh, had won the election in 2016 and was coming into office. He's a little bit disillusioned, I think, when you compare uh, when you <laughs> compare President Trump to a vampire or a zombie. Uh, it's probably probably an indication that there's some differences of opinion there. And speaking of differences of opinion, uh, George Washington University, uh, which is, along with Georgetown University, a uh, one of the leading educational institutions in the nation's capital. And uh, George Washington University will soon choose a new nickname for its athletic teams, dropping Colonials. 
after years of pressure from students who said the name was entangled with violence toward Native Americans and other colonized people. The campus community in the heart of the nation's capital has narrowed a list of 10 replacement candidacies to four finalists. Now, okay, their teams are the Colonials, and they have a mascot, which is uh, somebody dressed up with a big papier-mâché head of George Washington, because it's George Washington University, and it's the George Washington Colonials. Well, now the new finalists are the Ambassadors, uh-huh. Well, I guess, what do they have? They have the Commanders, right? They're the Washington Commanders, and they have the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, they also are talking about being named the George Washington University Blue Fog. And then uh, the Revolutionaries or the Sentinels. The Sentinels is just too close to the Guardians. I mean, really? The uh, school's mascot will remain George the First, uh, George Washington's head, which is uh, which a uniformed student wears. The more we engage and the more we keep the community, we help the community envision what the new moniker options might look like and give the community a chance to try out what the future might look like. We're getting a lot of positive encouragement," uh, said the president of the university. The Colonial's name has been part of the university's identity since 1926. It replaced the Hatchets, uh, the Hatchet Men, the Axe Men, and the Crummen. For that was for Henry Crum, who was a football coach. Opposition to the Colonial's nickname erupted in 2019 when the student body voted to remove it, and the Anything But Colonial's Coalition was formed, according to a report a university moniker committee released in 2021. Colonials were active purveyors of colonialism and were complicit in militarized and racialized violence, oppression, and hierarchical patriarchy, the uh, petition said. Colonialism has been historically and contemporaneously built upon usurping land, labor, and autonomy from racialized communities through dehumanizing violence and suppression. Don't you just love that that kind of rhetoric? This is like the Audubon Society now is struggling with the name Audubon. And, and what's wrong with John James Audubon, uh, who did those remarkable images, paintings, really, of birds? And why wouldn't you have a society that's dedicated to preserving and honoring and studying and celebrating birds named the Audubon Society? Well, because Audubon lived in Louisiana and he was a slave owner. And apparently, as part of his research, he desecrated some uh, Native American graves. In 2010, the University of Mississippi replaced its longtime mascot, a southern plantation owner known as Colonel Reb, with the Rebel Black Bear. Why is that better? The movement to drop team names and mascots based on Native American and Confederate imagery accelerated after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. Uh, as a white person with indigenous ancestry, George Britcher did not feel represented by the nickname Colonials. She was part of the committee that recommended, uh, this is Georgie Britner, Brick, uh, Britcher, 
She was part of a committee that recommended a change to the Board of Trustees. There were students who felt uncomfortable with the colonial moniker and were not proud to be colonials, said Ms. Richer, who was a leader of the university's Students for Indigenous and Native American Rights Group. In 2022, the university's student body was about 46% white, 10% Hispanic, 10% black, 12% Asian, and less than 1% indigenous. In the past, the buzz around the university's moniker was whether to change it to a hippo. They would be the George Washington University hippos. Really? Yeah, but what happened there? Uh, the animal has been an unofficial mascot since 1996 when a statue of a hippopotamus was given as a gift to the class of 2000 by Stephen Joel Trachtenberg, the university president at the time. Uh, the, the hippos, I, I guess, goes with the uh, gold fog. And released today... Uh, Governor DeSantis launches month-long taxpayer-funded presidential campaign travel schedule. Who is funding, uh, footing the bill for a sanctimonious National Travel Day uh, during the Florida legislative session? This is from uh, the Trump May Make America Great Again 2024 website. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is preparing for a month-long taxpayer-funded presidential campaign schedule paid for by Florida taxpayers and residents are asking just how much public money is being spent on which donor planes DeSantis is trying uh, put here DeSantis uh, how much uh, donor planes DeSantis is traveling and if any of it will be reported as campaign expenses uh, the um, Getting nasty, huh? According to Politico's Gary Fincord, over the next month, DeSantis plans on leaving Florida to campaign in Georgia, Pennsylvania, New York, Tennessee, Michigan, Ohio, New Hampshire, Utah, Texas, and even Israel. All this travel uh, occurs while the Florida legislature is in session and before DeSantis has formed a campaign committee to pay for his travel. This means Florida taxpayers are on the book uh, for the bill. Uh, a response from Governor DeSantis, I assume we'll get some response later today. Uh, there's also ongoing struggle involving Starbucks and a confrontation uh, between two Brooklynites, actually, at least originally Brooklynites, Howard Schultz and Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie, of course, found his way to Vermont, where he is the uh, independent U.S. senator from Vermont. Howard Schultz found his way to Seattle and forming Starbucks. And coming up, how a burrito led to the arrest of a bomber. Uh, we will get to that and much more in this greatest nation on God's green earth. For special discounts on history shows, check out MedvidHistoryStore.com.